All right, good morning. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started because we have a whole lot to cover uh, today. I'm going to start with introductions and then we'll um, get into the slides. My name is Tyler Martin uh, and this is Kirk Bargainquest and we both um, have the privilege of serving here in uh, Great Questions on Monday nights. Um, and today we're going to be talking about religions of the world. Um, so just to give you a little bit of the format that, that we're going to go through, there are six worldviews that we're going to cover and that's a whole lot in just about two and a half hours. Um, we will have a break right in the middle for about 10 minutes, um, as well as questions in the middle and at the end, okay? So I'm gonna hand it over to Kurt to start us off in prayer. Will y'all pray with me? Father, we just come to you so thankful. Lord, all truth is your truth. Uh, we thank you for the incredible love that you've demonstrated for us uh, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather together today to talk about truth, uh, its impact on our lives, um, and how we can walk in truth, because truth is a person. Uh, and so we just thank you so much uh, for this time. Uh, we ask you to bless it. Please prepare our hearts and help us to know you more as a result of it. Or maybe some of us in here who, who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, Lord, help us to take that next step. Uh, towards discovering truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so you should have some slides. Um, if you don't, they're on the back on the table there. And what's not included in the slides, we're going to be looking at some videos today. And we're going to start with one to talk about what's the purpose of the course. Um, why do we want to talk about worldviews at all? So let's watch this real quick clip, and then we'll get going. <laughs> They came into the library. They just started shooting at everyone. Everyone at my table was shot. Everyone at my table was shot. Everyone was at my table was shot. And then um, they left and they're like, oh, I gotta reload, I gotta reload. So let's talk about why that matters, and Kirk will take us through it. So why are we doing this class? Because for many reasons, but worldviews have consequences, right? They really do. Uh, if you think of Columbine, uh, I don't, if y'all can see up in the right-hand corner, but uh, apparently Eric Harris, uh, on the day of the massacre, wore a shirt that says, Natural Selection. So he was clearly influenced by his worldview. And so it makes sense that if you have been taught since you were a little kid that we are here as a result of an accident, that there really is no meaning or purpose to life whatsoever, uh, there is no objective truth, there's no basis for morality, and by the way, when you die, that's the end. You just flame out. So there's, it's a meaningless existence. Well, that's going to have a great impact on the way that you live your life. And it did in the case of those two guys. And we could talk about uh, worldviews that we're seeing right now impact our, our, uh, our globe in terms of ISIS. Um, we could look back in time at things like uh, Nazism and how that worldview impacted our globe. And so understanding worldviews can help us to do several things. Uh, one... 
they can help us to better understand what it is that we believe. Uh, for those of us who are Christians, we are called uh, to meditate on God's word day and night. We're called to be competent in the word. Um, and so it can definitely help us understand what we believe also in comparison to what some of these other world religions and worldviews teach. It helps us to more effectively live out what we believe. Uh, we're, we are called to put our faith into action. Uh, and so the better that we understand what we believe, the more equipped we're going to be to go out and to live it out. <clears throat> we're also going to be able to more effectively communicate and defend our faith uh, to others. We are called to give a defense uh, for the hope that we have in Second Peter uh, 3.15. So that really helps us uh, when, once we know what we believe and what others believe, then we're going to be more prepared uh, to give a defense for the hope that we have. And then finally, as we do that, we're going to be able to participate in life change. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, we, we are told that those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are given the ministry and the message of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors. And so we have the opportunity to go out as his ambassadors and to represent him uh, to other people. Uh, and we, people of different worldviews and different world religions are all around us. And so we have an amazing opportunity to go out as his ambassadors. Uh, and, and as God moves... Uh, we get to participate in that life change. All right, so let's talk about the outline for today. Um, we're going to be covering a lot, like I said. First, we're going to talk about what a worldview is. Um, for some of you, that may be a new term. Um, and then we'll talk about how do you engage people of different worldviews. Um, and we'll look at a chart that we'll kind of use to compare these worldviews uh, to each other. Um, the top six we're going through are Christianity, Islam, naturalism, postmodernism, Eastern pantheism, and New Age worldviews uh, in that order. Okay? So let's get started. We'll look at the world and see, you know, where do these worldviews show up? Um, even by numbers, you can do a quick Google search and find out how many people are adherents to each of these worldviews. Um, mainly, though, it's going to be by religion. So not every uh, worldview is a religion. And we're going to see a couple, or at least one, postmodernism is not a religion. So it's harder to graph that, but the rest, you can see Christianity is uh, the red here, um, is a large part of the world, and then in some of them, some of these countries is even more um, populated as the darker red, uh, and Islam being the second largest. Um, so just, this is just to kind of give you a view of, of the way the world looks. Uh, with these religions. Of course, though, in America, you have every single worldview. It's a melting pot. And you'll find that in a lot of other places, maybe m less so in the Middle East, where it's going to be more exclusively Islam. All right, so what is a worldview? It's actually pretty simple. Uh, a worldview is our view of the world. It is how we filter everything that we uh, see and think about and feel. Um, so it answers questions for us. Our beliefs will um, be what helps us to answer these types of questions. Um, and a lot of times this may be un subconscious. Um, sometimes it's consciously, but a lot of people don't know what their worldview is, but they still have answers to these questions. So you can back into it by asking certain questions, and we're going to talk through that in a minute. Of what kind of questions would you ask? And as we go through every worldview, we'll look at what types of questions are pertinent to this kind of person. Um, to with this type of view. Um, so questions like, what is reality? Um, is reality spiritual or physical, or is it both? 
there are different answers to those questions. Um, where did I come from? Many different answers to that question. Uh, who am I? What is my purpose? So these types of questions, we're actually going to look at them uh, in a little more depth for each type of worldview that we, we covered today. So as we saw earlier, though, a worldview determines how we will live. Um, again, people may not consciously think that way, but it's true. So we're going to see that. Uh, and then you want to talk a little bit about truth? Yeah, what's interesting is we have, uh, we have a, a context here of how we actually know things. Um, we are up here uh, believing that there are absolute truths. Okay, we, We're going to cover later on that there are people who would disagree with that um, in a postmodern uh, post setting or postmodern belief system. Uh, people are going to reject uh, the, the idea of absolute truth. But what's interesting is when you say there are no absolutes, you've just created an absolute statement. Uh, so it's, it's self-refuting. Um, so we, as we go through this, in fact, for us to even be able to define and compare uh, worldviews and world religions, we have to have some sort of an objective way, a, a, a system of truth uh, to be able to do that, or else it's meaningless, okay? Um, most of you may, may or may, I don't know if you're familiar with the, what's called the law of non-contradiction, but uh, that's something that says that, so A cannot equal non-A, right? And so as we, as we talk about these, these truth systems and these worldviews, uh, we're going we're gonna to see later on that, especially, again, with, with the postmoderns and even some in the, in the, Eastern, uh, in the Eastern religions and worldviews, uh, that that doesn't always hold up. And in fact, when we, when we think about East versus West views of logic, uh, we, can, we can have some difficulties in communication uh, because oftentimes in, in the Eastern worldviews and the, their, uh, their logic, uh, they, they're okay with saying things are an illusion or things are contradictory. Um, and so that's something that we just need to be really mindful of as we engage and as we discuss um, people who, who hold uh, those views. But, but it's important to say that we are coming from a standpoint of believing that truth is knowable, there are absolutes, and we can reason together. Uh, as we talk through various uh, world religions and worldviews and how to know truth. So let's talk a little bit about preparing our heart to engage. Uh, we, we're we're going to uh, say this uh, probably over and over. It, it's worth saying. Um, in fact, let's just do this. I wanna, I'm going to read this verse out loud because I think this is really, really helpful, this passage here. This is from 2 Timothy 2, uh, 24 through 26. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Okay, so that passages packed uh, with, with some things that are really helpful for us as we go out and seek to engage the world around us. But two things that I w really want to highlight. One is prayer. Um, be dependent on the Lord. We see there that it is God who grants repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Okay, So 
it is not our job to convince somebody of anything, okay? We, we, are, we are here to be God's ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors. For those of us who have placed our trust in Christ, we are, we are simply to present uh, truth. We're to love people. It's, it's going to be oftentimes a long-term process as we, as we engage people. Um, but we just need to remember that only God can change the heart, okay? That's, that's his job. Um, bless you. Um, so be dependent on the Lord. It is his work. And then second is, is our posture, okay? And that's actually we can talk about posture in terms of our posture before the Lord, dependence on him, but also our posture as we are engaging other people. So we see several descriptors in this passage to not be quarrelsome, be kind, don't be resentful, be gentle, okay? Another way to say that is, you know, to be winsome. And so we, we are to engage people in a way uh, such that we are not a deterrent, right? It's easy for the messenger to get in the way of the message uh, when we come across as argumentative, um, obnoxious, and things like that. So it's just very important to uh, remember this verse or th this passage, I think, is, is a, a helpful way as we engage people. So our next slide here, how to engage. Uh, we have a book. I, I, I don't know how many of you saw it on your way in, but there's a book called Tactics. And we're, it's, on, it's on your reading list or list of resources at the back of the presentation. Uh, we want to highly, highly recommend uh, that you read that book. It, it is the best book that most of us uh, around Watermark Circles have ever read in terms of how to engage. So there's, there are literally scores of books out there that talk about the information related to these various worldviews and world religions and comparing and contrasting. Um, th there are. There's dozens and dozens of those. But we, we've never seen one that that it does such a good job of, of in how to engage. And really, the focus of the book is, and it's, it seems so simple, but the focus of the book is asking thought-provoking questions, okay, um, to engage the person that you're talking with. So doing that allows several things. First of all, it allows us to be better listeners, right? When we ask questions, that automatically means that we then are quiet so that we can hear what the other person has to say. Well, when we do that, we're demonstrating care and concern. Um, we're developing a rapport. We're developing a relationship uh, with that person. It also enables us to uncover their actual beliefs. Okay, And uh, this is really important because <clears throat> there's a great example uh, that Greg Kokel gives in that book. And he says that, uh, that he had a student approach him one time and said, and he said, I've got a, a Buddhist friend uh, that, that I want to engage and have dialogue with. Can you recommend a good book on Buddhism for me to read? And Greg just said, no, forget the book. Go buy your friend a cup of coffee, sit down, and ask him to tell you what he believes. And in doing that, you're going to do these things that we just talked about. You're going to build a relationship. You're going to befriend him. And then you're going to give him the opportunity to tell you exactly what he believes because oftentimes... Um, people believe things that are different from the academic version of their religion or worldview. So you'll be able to find out exactly what it is that he believes or she believes 
Uh, and in doing so, then you will be able to determine what are the best ways then to engage, you know, using further questions and, and using the truth and the gospel to actually uh, have a dialogue with this person about their beliefs versus uh, your beliefs. So we think that's, uh, that's really helpful. And the, the, um, again, the, 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 the term he uses just as a, as a silly way to help you remember it is he calls it the Columbo tactic. Um, after the Detective Columbo in the old show, which I don't know how many of you in there even remember Columbo. But um, anyway, so his two main questions are, what do you mean by that? Just ask that clarifying question up front. When somebody says something that could mean a lot of different things, what do you mean by that? And then oftentimes a follow-up question, well, how did you come to that conclusion? So those are just two examples of great questions to ask people to draw them out and to understand their actual beliefs. I think it's really important that what he said about asking someone what they believe, there's a few worldviews we're going to talk about today where we're having to be very general because the, um, the varied amount of beliefs even within that worldview are so broad that you can't really assume that you know anything uh, about what they might particularly believe. There are some of them that have many paths, right? So we're going to talk about that. The last thing I would want for you after coming out of this class and looking at some of this material is to walk up to someone with a postmodern view and say, hey, you know, you're a walking contradiction. Like yeah. <laughs> Please don't do that. So uh -huh. we'll talk about those things. Um, with each worldview, we'll talk about how to engage the person. Um, so I want to um, introduce this chart. You should have had this as a handout. Um, we're going to fill this out as we go for each of the worldviews, and we're going to answer four main questions. Um, as you look at studies of worldview, um, a lot of these generally bubble up as the main types of questions that can define a worldview or that a worldview has answers to. And a worldview must have coherent answers to each of these. In other words, your definition of origin should cohere with your definition of what happens after this life. If they don't, then it's not a legitimate worldview. A lot of people live with an illegitimate worldview or a mashup of many worldviews. Um, so that's, what, again, why it's important to just ask them, what do you believe about certain things? So we're going to talk about origin. What do each of these views believe about where we came from? Uh, we'll talk about means of salvation. There's another question that's implicit in that that, mean, that says that we actually need salvation. What do we need salvation from? Is there a fall? Is something wrong with the world? And then we'll talk about what, is, what does redemption look like for this worldview, and that's going to vary widely. Where do ethics come from, and what are they? Who decides what's wrong and right, or bad and good? Some worldviews don't even uh, count this as a category, so we'll talk about that as well. Afterlife, what happens after this um, present life that we're in? So um, it's going to be interesting. We'll, we'll plot these, and we'll walk through them as we go. Okay? One other way that we're going to talk about worldviews is I want to introduce a spectrum here. So on the left, um, is it the left? Yeah. So on the left... Um, we have everything is physical, so the world is only physical, all reality is physical. On the right, everything is spiritual. And at the end, we're going to put the worldviews on this spectrum. And we'll see what they actually believe about reality. Okay? Alright, so with that, we'll go ahead and get started into the first worldview. We're going to do Christianity, and um, with all of them, we'll get started with a clip to kind of introduce it and get us warmed up about what we're going to talk about. Um, so let's watch this first one.
a reason to believe and to continue on in your life and your journey. Not that blonde-haired dude that they show in all those pictures. I think Jesus was just a story made up by someone. Could have been probably a, a, a real person. It's something special, but uh, not, not, not like the story says. Yeah. I'm actually glad you're all here tonight. I want to tell you that one of you will betray me. Nah, <laughs> just kidding. Ah, he's doing that thing he did in his storybook. Uh, Jesus, a friend of mine from Puerto Rico. I don't know. I, I don't know Jesus very well, so... Jesus? Like Jesus? The son of God? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Definitely not the guy who cuts my lawn. Dear Tiny and for Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. Yes, there's definitely something special about Jesus. The same things that are special about me and you and, well, everybody. Definitely good morals and beliefs, and um, possibly had some special gift. And his best pal, Peter. Oh, 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 wow. Who do you say Jesus is? <laughs> he's really important. His birthday's coming up. People believe in Jesus. He's your savior. He's number one. Everyone is giddy with anticipation for Jesus to come out because, as we all know, if Jesus comes out of his house and is not scared by his shadow, it means the next thousand years will be full of peace and love. He was just really chill. I think he even smoked some pot, so I love Jesus even more. He seems like a kind of Gandhi-type guy. Some superpower, I just don't know. I, I believe in him, so... <laughs> uh, he was Jewish. Look, I think he's inspiring for a lot of people, so that's really cool to me. God bless him. <laughs> a make-believe story that's got blown out of proportion. All right. <clears throat> so there's a lot of ideas about who Jesus was uh, and is and what Christianity is. It's sad and funny at the same time. Probably some of that was funny. Some of it's very sad. Um, so let's talk about what is the Christian worldview. Um, and Kurt's going to take us through that. All right, so we took this directly from the watermark statement of faith, which seems appropriate given where we are. So, but this, this is true of all Orthodox uh, Christianity, right? So we believe in one God uh, who created all things. Uh, that God has eternally existed uh, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, One God, one in essence, but three persons. And we call that the Trinity. Um, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is God the Son, um, and that he became a man. Uh, and we believe that uh, man was created innocent uh, in the likeness and image of God. Uh, but that uh, he fell in the garden. He was given a choice, um, and he, he chose to rebel against God. And from that point in time, sin entered the world. Uh, and now all people are born with a sinful nature are, and are in need of salvation. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Um, we believe in a bodily resurrection. Okay, that, uh, that everybody is going to be raised uh, once they die, and we are all eternal beings. Um, in terms of salvation, we believe that salvation is a gift from God, okay, that is received by grace through faith, 
uh, not as a result of works. And we believe that, that all believers are the elect of God, that once somebody has, is saved, once they have placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, that they cannot lose their salvation, that they are saved and kept secure in Christ forever, and that we, we believe one day uh, Jesus is going to physically return to earth uh, to establish his kingdom here. Uh, one thing I think that's really important to point out about Christianity in contrast to the other worldviews that we're going to get into is, and specifically world religions, um, Christianity is the only one who believes that we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. Um, every other world religion believes that there is some formula, there's some sequence of steps, there is some effort of man that is required, some works-based system to enable you uh, to be saved or to enter into nirvana or whatever their idea of heaven looks like. And one thing that's really helpful to me as a visual to think about that is every other world religion, think about they, they are striving to reach up to God. So it, it's a picture of their works striving to, to reach God and present some sort of a resume, some sort of, here's what I've done. My good, we, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds or whatever that is. They're striving to reach God and present that to God. Christianity is the only one where God reaches down and does for man what we could never do on our own. Okay, So we're saved by grace through faith, we, not as a result of works. So that's a, that's a helpful way for me to remember the difference. Yeah, and I think that uh, something I left off in this slide is just the, um, the fact that something is wrong. Christianity asserts that sin entered the world with Adam uh, and that we have fallen. And so if you look at all the religions that sort of do say the same thing, that something is wrong, um, one picture that I really like um, in addition to Kirk's is if you can imagine everyone is out off of the beach in, in an ocean kind of drowning and we're, we're splashing around and we need help. And all the, the major people of the world religions are on the beach there watching. And they're saying, hey, just come this way, just swim, like throw your arms around like this, kick your feet. But only one, Jesus, goes into the water and gets you. And then he brings you back. So that's, that's a huge difference with all these others who are trying to tell you the way to get there. This one, Jesus, comes and gets you because you can't get there yourself. Okay, so let's talk about what does Christianity as a worldview look like as it answers these four questions. So origin, as Kirk talked about, Christianity is a theistic belief system, meaning that God is the creator. There is a God. He's a creator. He is uh, personal. That means transcendent and imminent with us, um, and that he created us in his image. That is unique. Uh, we are made in God's image, humans. Mankind is made in God's image. God created the world and said it's good. So physical world is good. Um, there's also a spiritual world, so we're going to look at that later on uh, as it compares to other religions and worldviews. Means of salvation. As we said, there is a fall. So something went wrong. We need redemption. This is what Christianity and the Bible asserts, and this is what we believe. So faith in the death and resurrection of Christ for sins is our means to salvation. Because like I said, he came... He came and he comes and, and pursues us. We receive that by faith. Um, so what about ethics? 
Uh, where does ethics come from? It comes from God. He is the source of good uh, and right. So he is the source of ethics. What he says and what he does are, are good. Okay, so we learn that from the Bible mainly. Um, what about afterlife? Well, as you, um, as Kirk already mentioned, um, we will be risen again. So there's a bodily resurrection. Um, and we will exist then eternally with God or without God. It's those two choices. One of them uh, without God is typically referred to as hell. But um, probably the easiest way to think about that, the way that I like to, is just that you're not with the only source of good that there is. Um, so being with God is um, what Christians assert that by faith you can be there for eternity. Okay? So I entered this slide here. I just wanted to talk briefly about the difference. I mentioned theism. So there is something called deism as well. Deism is um, half of the equation that I said God is transcendent and imminent. Well, deism believes he is transcendent but not imminent. Um, so he created the world and set it in motion in the universe, and then he stepped back. So that's what a deist would say, that he created everything, but he is not involved in the creation. It runs by itself, so it's actually a very naturalistic worldview. Evolution... Um, brought about everything that we see now, but God started it. Um, so the world here is not fallen. It's actually the way it's supposed to be. So for a deist, they wouldn't look at the world and say, oh, I need to be saved. Something needs to happen there. Um, some famous deists that you might know about, Franklin, Ben Franklin, uh, Voltaire, John Locke, and Albert Einstein. Now another uh, sort of a pop culture uh, version of deism is called moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but it's, it's kind of the spiritual but not religious crowd. It's those who would say, well, I don't need religion. I don't, I don't need all these organized institutional and doctrines and uh, dogmas. Um, so what does that look like typically? A study was done that came up with this term, a moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, in the study, they said that people tend to treat God in these three ways. That first, uh, I should be good because good people go to heaven. You've probably heard that. It's actually the opposite of Christianity, right? No one's good, the Bible says, and we, we can go to heaven, but it's not because we were good. And that's, that's very important for a Christian. Um, so good people, ethics, and morals, they go to heaven, and we're going to uh, hear a little bit of that later. Um, another thing is the therapeutic side of it. So when I'm really down and, and something hard's going on, I should pray. Like, hey, I'm going to pray for you. But that's all it really is. It's, it's only when I need God. So he's a genie in a bottle for me. I'm going to pray that I get good things from this God that's out there. And I only go to church on Christmas and Easter. Um, this was me, by the way, before Christ. So I'm not judging. I, uh, I know this because I was there. So, um, and they're deistic because they believe there is a God. Or at the very least, uh, maybe agnostic. But that's about all. He's not involved in everyday life. So he is separate. He's out there. Uh, so that's moralistic therapeutic deism. You'll see that a lot in the world, I think especially in America, um, where we have sort of a watered-down Christianity. It's something to look out for and to be able to talk to a person like that and say, hey, you know, uh, what do you believe about how someone relates to God or has a relationship with him or what happens after this life? Or how is the question that Watermark brings up a lot that I really like is, well, if you died right now and you stood before God, why should he let you into heaven? Well, because I was good, right? So, okay, so we're talking about a moralistic worldview here. 
um, or a moralistic view of salvation so that and that becomes a conversation about, well, how, how good should you be or do you have to be? Where's the line, right? So um, that gets into a conversation of um, what is the basis for our salvation? Is it us, really? Thankfully, it's not. All right, so um, we're going to move on then to uh, the next worldview. This is Islam. Um, so again, we'll get started with a clip and then we'll jump into it. Okay, is it? Let, let me let me we, break we, this we down for you. Okay, we have, as you that, as you say, we have 1.5, 1.6 billion mm -hmm. Muslims. Now, second biggest religion in the world, a quarter. Well, ben, let me let me unpack this. Let me unpack this for you. Please do. Um, we have just imagine some concentric circles here. You have at the center, you have jihadists. These are people who wake up in the morning wanting to kill apostates, wanting to to die trying. They believe in paradise. They Horrible they, they bad people in, that, in, yeah. in martyrdom. Outside of them, we have Islamists. These are, these are people who are just as convinced of martyrdom and paradise and, and wanting to, to foist their religion on the rest of humanity, but they want to work within the system. They're not going to blow themselves up on a bus. They want to change governments. They want to use democracy against itself. That, it, that, those two circles arguably are 20% of the Muslim world. Okay, this is, this is not what the fringe of the fringe. What are you basing that research on? A, a bunch of poll results that we can talk about. So uh, to, to give you one point of contact, 78% of British Muslims think that the Danish cartoonists should have been prosecuted. 78%. So I'm being conservative when I roll this back to 20%. But outside of that circle, you have conservative Muslims who are, can, can, write, can honestly look at ISIS and say, that, that does not represent us, we're, that we're horrified by that. But they hold views about human rights and about women and about homosexuals that are deeply troubling. So, so they, these are not Islamists; they're not jihadists. But they, but they both. Those they, views they, they are they, they, they also keep women and homosexuals immiserated in these cultures. And we have to empower the true reformers in the Muslim world yeah. to, to change it. And, well, what, and but, lying about the, the, the link yeah, between okay, doctrine and, and behavior is not yeah. going to do that. But the, the great divide. Um, the great divide is not between Islam and the rest. It's right. rather between the fundamentalists right. and the moderates in each faith. Okay, but we're misled. Okay. So everybody's heard about ISIS probably in the media lately and just the kind of the scare going around about jihadism. Uh, so what is that? Does it relate to or is it uh, pertinent for all Muslims? As we kind of heard, it's, it's not necessarily, but still there are views there that concern us in the West. Um, Islam is now making its way into the Western world, so it is, I think, valuable to talk about it a little bit. Um, Islam can be categorized as another religion, um, whereas I said not all of them will be, but this one is. Uh, Christianity and Islam are certainly um, religions and belief systems about, uh, about God. So let's talk about what Islam is. Um, what are some of their beliefs? Again, this is going to touch very lightly on a lot of this. We cannot go into all, I mean, there are many, many things about Islam, right, that we're not going to be able to cover. So ask questions if you're talking to someone uh, who's a Muslim. Okay, so what about reality? So another theistic belief system. So God is there. He created everything. But in this sense, he is not, trans he is not imminent, not in the same sense as Christianity. He's transcendent. He transcends all of his creation, and he never inserts himself into it. Okay, so, and in fact, in Islam, the main sin, the cardinal sin of Islam is to put anything equal with God. That is idolatry of the highest order. 
So when a Christian says, what about Jesus? He is the son of God. That's the highest sin for a Muslim. So to ask a Muslim to accept that is to ask them to commit the worst sin in Islam, right? Um, so you can see why there's so much pushback to this around the world. Um, so again, reality here is physical and spiritual. Um, belief systems, there are, there are many, um, but two uh, sort of systems that you can find even on a quick Google search. And by the way, you should look, look up this stuff if you want to go deeper into it. And I'm going to have some resources at the end that you can look into a little bit more. We're going to touch briefly on this. But there are six articles of faith that talk about the beliefs of Islam, belief in, a, in one God, angels, prophets, um, revealed books, the Quran, uh, and some of the others, day of judgment, and uh, destiny and divine decree. And then there's the five pillars of Islam. So these are the things that all Muslims must do in their life. Uh, first starts the statement of faith. Um, it kind of goes, um, there is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet. Um, actually, I'll read it to you. There is no deity worthy of being accept, worshipped except God, and Muhammad is his messenger. Um, so the declaration of faith is sort of how you enter the Muslim faith. Um, then there's prayer, so they must pray five times a day, um, and they gain spiritual strength through that. Uh, so and the next one being um, fasting during the month of Ramadan every year. And um, this one they have to do in, it's actually every year, and it's during the day only. So they can eat after um, daylight hours. Uh, so then there's charity, so giving to um, those who are less fortunate. And finally, a pilgrimage to Mecca, which can be if they're not able to go for some reason, someone can go in their place. All right, so these are the five pillars of Islam, and salvation is kind of based on these, but it's also based on faith. So here we have a, a hybrid um, view of salvation of faith and works. So it's both, and, and the, the works side is actually the Quran describes it as being like a scale. So your good outweighs your bad on this scale. And then you get to, uh, you die and you go in front of Allah and, and actually he can still send you away. Um, so you're not guaranteed salvation and really you don't know if you have it except for one thing. The only thing that guarantees your salvation is martyrdom. So dying in the cause of Allah uh, guarantees that you'll be in heaven. Okay, so that heaven here is the paradise that you probably heard about. Um, before. So let's talk then about the, um, if I can get this to work. Let's talk about the worldview matrix then. <clears throat> so Islam, what does it say about origin? We are created by God, but we're not in his image. And to say so is, again, idolatry and blasphemy. We are not made in the image of God, and nothing is. Um, so means of salvation. Again, Islam says something did happen. In fact, it takes the biblical point of view of the fall of Adam. And really, if you study the history of Islam, you see it diverge. Their belief system diverges around um, Israel, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Um, and by the way, a little bit of history. Muhammad lived in the uh, 6th century, the late 500s, I believe, um, in a desert culture. And so a lot of the things that you see in the Muslim faith that we can't get into today are um, a result, you can see how they would tie to giving people hope in a desert culture, a non-agrarian culture like that. Um, so yeah, 
So Muhammad went to a cave for um, many months and was visited by an angel where he gained uh, a lot of this revelation, which he continually uh, doled out and was, it formed the, the holy books for them over the rest of his life. Okay. Um, so, but judgment based on faith and then good works. So your works. Um, ethics here, again, determined by Allah. So read the Quran, read the holy books, and find out what ethics are. That's where that source comes from. But there is good and evil. Uh, and afterlife, uh, very similar again, is eternal existence in either paradise or hell, uh, depending on the good judgment of Allah. All right. Are they with God in heaven? Yeah, or if it's paradise or Right. Um, let's go back here. You know, I'm going to have to defer on that question, and maybe we can come back to it later, or I can get you some resources. Um, my inclination is that you would not be with God, um, but I don't want to speak wrong. So. so on this slide, we're going to talk about uh, presenting... Uh, Christ to Muslims, or first even before presenting Christ, right, and just engaging uh, with Muslims in conversation. <clears throat> so the first one that I have there is uh, we, we always need to be prepared to address uh, several common objections uh, that come up uh, when, when we're talking with Muslims. Most of these stem from uh, misinterpretations of the Bible. Uh, so we, uh, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at SMU, and we had an interfaith dialogue there, and they, uh, they brought in some, uh, some Islamic scholars to engage in, in some conversations. And uh, what we repeatedly heard was, first of all, in, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, there's, a, there's a verse there where God says to Moses that I'm going to send a prophet uh, like you uh, to the people and uh, the Muslims will take that verse and they'll say that that is referring to Muhammad. So, so the prophet that God would send like Moses is actually Muhammad. Um, we know that it's Jesus uh, through, through um, you know, proper biblical interpretation, uh, but that's something that, that you definitely want to be ready uh, to discuss with them. Uh, the next one is in, in John 14 and following in the 15. Uh, Jesus says that he's going to go away. He's talking to his disciples, and he says he's going to go away, and he's going to send the counselor or the advocate. And again, the Muslims will take that, and they'll say that the counselor or the advocate that Jesus is referring to is Muhammad. Um, well, clearly, that if you keep reading the text, it says that the counselor is the spirit of truth or the Holy Spirit. Um, and in, in the conversations with these uh, Islamic scholars, they, they, say, they said that the, the Bible has been tampered with or corrupted. And so that, that was inserted later uh, by Christians to say the spirit of truth. Uh, but again, they, they, uh, they assert that it's, it's Muhammad that's being spoken of there. Um, so again, the, uh, and then the Trinity is another great uh, example of something that is often brought up. Uh, they, they have a, a misunderstanding of the Trinity that, is, that we believe in three gods uh, versus what we talked about earlier in Christianity, that we believe there is one God who exists in three persons. Um, so we definitely need to be ready to, to speak to that. Um, 
and then several misunderstandings about Jesus, uh, again, about him being the son of God and what that means. Uh, some of that is uh, semantics. Uh, they, 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 if, when, we, when they hear the term son of God, uh, they typically think that th- what we're saying is that you know, God or Allah came and had physical relations with a woman to make a son. Um, clearly, that's not what uh, Christianity teaches in terms of what, what it means for Jesus to be the son of God. Um, so so there's, some, there's some language issues and some interpretation issues uh, that we definitely need to be ready to speak to. Uh, next, we can see that we really do need to make much of Jesus. Um, Jesus is, is highly regarded in Islam. Okay? Jesus uh, is referred to throughout the Quran. Uh, the Quran affirms the virgin birth of Jesus. Uh, it affirms his miracles and it even affirms his sinless life. Um, and I've, I've referenced some uh, surah, meaning chapters, there in, in the Quran. Um, and so a great question to ask is that you know, the Quran itself teaches that, that Muhammad was not sinless, uh, but that Jesus was. And w- what does this mean to you? This is a, this is a great uh, question to, to engage in, in dialogue uh, with, with what it means. And, a note of caution here now it's just as we talked about earlier this is why it's so important to sit down and ask uh, in this case your Muslim friend what they believe because I, I had a conversation with a Muslim not too long ago and he, he believes that the Quran teaches that, that Muhammad is sinless um, I even took a, a chapter or a, one of these chapters in the Quran that says that Muhammad or that Jesus was the only one that was not touched by Satan. So that's their, in, in uh, Islam, their view of the sinful nature, what we would say in Christianity is the sinful nature. The way they typically describe that is to say that every person has been touched by Satan. Um, but in, in this passage in, in the Quran, it says that Jesus was not touched by Satan and he was the only one. So in that context, Jesus is sinless, and Muhammad isn't. So let's talk about that. What, do you, what does that mean then? That, that is correct. But again, that, that's a, we need to define terms there and, and define the, the semantics of son of God because, again, we would never say Jesus is the son of God from the standpoint of of, of the father having sexual relations with a woman, right, to create a son, which is how they understand it, okay? Well, exactly, right? And so this is why it's so important to ask these questions, to, to have an understanding of what it is that they, that they believe. Um, I saw a couple other hands can let, we're going to have, I think, plenty of time for questions right here before the break. So if you'll, if you'll hold those, we'll certainly come back to this. Um, so the next big point there is that salvation for Muslims is works-based, right? It's requiring that good deeds must outweigh the bad. Um, and so some, some questions to ask in that regard. And by the way, I've, uh, for those of you, I don't know if you, you've uh, run into Mo Sajapur here, Mo Mo's a great resource. We've we've had several good conversations, um, and uh, and he will he will tell you that that to him now now he comes from the Shia side. So again, <laughs> we can't state this enough. Understanding, uh, getting to understand that your this individual's uh, 
particular beliefs is so important because you have uh, Shia Muslims, there are Sunni Muslims, uh, Muhammad comes from the, the Shia side, uh, and, and, in, and in his experience, asking that, that question, how many good deeds are enough? He said to him, and for in his own life, and then as he shares with his family, who most of them are, are still Muslims um, and friends, that he said that is the one that over and over again they, they, they can't answer. And in fact, even Muhammad could not answer the question of, of how many good deeds is enough. And so then transitioning that into, well, then how do you reconcile having no assurance of salvation? Um, that's just a great thing to get them to begin wrestling through if they haven't already. The next one is, <clears throat> what if you could experience the love, peace, and compassion of God? Uh, my friend Abner, who, who is here that many of you may have come across, um, Abner said this was the one that was the, the, the most difficult question when he began wrestling with his Muslim faith and eventually he, he trusted in Christ. He said this was the one question for him that, that he just could not get out of his head and that really made him start to consider the claims of Christ. He just said in, in Islam there is no love and even though Islam you know, uh, means peace, there is no peace in Islam. According to him, that's that's as a Muslim, that was his take on it. He and there's no compassion. Um, you know, he even told me specifically. He said, he said, uh, in Christianity, he said there is repentance in Christianity. We can turn to God and and basically ask for His mercy and ask for His help. And He, Jesus, paid for it. And he said, in Islam, nobody paid for it. You just you have to hope that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, uh, and and you can never know how how good is good enough or how much is enough, and you may even be in the presence of Allah one day, and you think that you've followed the five pillars of Islam, that you've led a good life, and Allah can still say nope, not enough. So that that really uh, made him wrestle through, and and the claims of Jesus then became. Uh, so sweet to him that he knew that he could experience peace, compassion, mercy, and that, and that God himself had taken his place and bore his sin and his bad deeds upon himself. And so, and so for Abner, that, that made all the difference. Uh, finally, another question that sort of you know, wraps all this together if it's true that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to pay for your bad deeds and that by trusting in him, you can have assurance of salvation, what would you think about that? So again, just another open-ended question to, to, to engage and to ask or, or to find out what, what would you think if this were true, if this was available to you, and it is, uh, how would that change things? How, what would you think about that? Yeah, I had the um, opportunity about a year ago to go to Ethiopia with Watermark, and we met a lot of Muslims there. Um, and I'll tell you, one of the biggest things that was difficult for them that they couldn't get around was the Trinity. Um, just the fact of, or the idea of three gods and what does that mean? Because like Kirk said, they think that that means three separate gods, but it, it doesn't for us. Um, two ways that you may be able to relate this. They're not perfect, um, I'll tell you that up front. Um, but they can help as an analogy. The first is an egg. Uh, if you've ever heard this, an egg is 
the shell, the, um, the white, and the yolk. All three are an egg. They make up an egg, right? But they're different substances. So where this helps us understand is that three things make up an egg. Where it falls short is that they're different substances, again, right? So um, God is the same substance. Uh, another uh, analogy is water. So water can exist in three forms, ice, um, liquid, or gas, so solid, liquid, gas. But it's still all water, right? H2O. It's all, it's all H2O, yes, right. Um, so those, those kind of help sometimes to when you're discussing with a, a Muslim about what the Trinity means. But again, I think it really does go back to these last few questions on here. It's about salvation at the end of the day. Um, they may have these intellectual blocks um, up, but what's really going to uh, probably impact them is, is to know that there's something personal about God, that he actually loved you, and that's why Jesus came. Um, so I would emphasize the love part with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in, in that regard, again, we can't say this enough, but, uh, but Abner, Abner has told me, he said, don't ever, ever, ever argue uh, with a Muslim in terms of, the, the type of argumentation that we would think of as sort of being pushy or trying to force uh, something on there or to win uh, a debate. Uh, in, in, uh, he said in, in, that, in that culture, in the Arabic culture, um, they, they do not want to lose face. Uh, and so, and especially if it's, there's more than one Muslim present, um, they, they are obligated to then defend uh, their belief. And so they're, they're not going to lose an argument. So, so it's, a, it's a waste of time. And in fact, it'll probably hurt the relationship and any, any attempts to, uh, to uh, progress in the conversation moving forward. Um, so he just said, you know, show love. And I even spoke with uh, Abner's wife, who, uh, Sarah, who knew Abner prior to Abner uh, trusting Christ. And, and she just said it, it, it's, it's a process, you know, just just to, to engage, to love. Uh, she said, to, that in, in, from her perspective, the greatest thing was just continuing to show that love, to not push, to be available. Um, um, she said most of the time, and, and he, he agreed, that they, they eventually, if that friendship is, is building, that they will want to come to you and ask questions because typically uh, most Muslims don't have an outlet or they don't have somebody to go talk to um, to ask questions, and they have a lot of questions. And so as that friendship continues, uh, many times they, they will seek you out um, to ask questions about what you believe or what the differences are or how you would answer this uh, that they've come across in the Islamic teaching. Um, and then he, he said another thing that uh, he, would, he would caution all of us uh, or, or, or um, recommend to all of us is he said that uh, you know, if you are engaged uh, engaging with uh, with a Muslim, he said, definitely read the Quran. Uh, he said that it's it's going to be considered a sign of disrespect, right? If you are engaging in conversation and then they find out, well, you've you've not even read th- their most sacred book. So so read it. Not he does not cover to cover necessarily, but although that would be good, uh, but definitely spend some time with it to get a flavor for. What, it is, what they believe in, in that sort of thing. And he said what's been really uh, helpful to him as he's become a Christian and, and as he's engaged with other Muslims is he'll tell them, he'll say, you go read the Bible. Um, now, in his case, he already knows the Quran really well, but for some of us, 
we would say you, to the Muslim, you read the Bible, I'll read the Quran, then let's come back together and let's talk about it. Let's talk about the differences, and that's just a great way uh, to continue dialogue. And another good resource, I've got the book on here, you can see Gospel for Muslims. Um, it's listed in your resources later if you want to find out the author um, to read that one. So let's go ahead and we'll do questions um, right at the midpoint of our talks. So, yeah. Correct. Yes. Couldn't you say that Deuteronomy 18 18 actually supports Islam because it says a prophet like Moses mm -hmm. will come and you said that that was Jesus. Jesus in Christianity is supposed to be the Messiah, but it actually calls him a prophet. So does Islam. So doesn't that actually support Islam? The first way I would answer that is so we, we know about Jesus through the rest of Scripture that he fulfilled all the offices of prophet, priest, and king. So you see it throughout the Old Testament, uh, you know, the, the priests um, who were the intercessors between God and men. Uh, we, know, we know that Jesus fulfilled that, that he is, he is the great high priest who goes, um, who uh, is the interme intermediary between us and God. He was also the fulfillment um, you know, he told, he told uh, his disciples and others when he came on the scene that, that he fulfilled the law. And so the, the, the Moses was the lawgiver. Um, and so when, when Deuteronomy talks about a prophet that would be like Moses, uh, it, it's referring to the prophet who would fulfill all of the law and all of the prophets. And then Jesus himself said that's what he came to do, that he came to fulfill all of it. So the question is, in Zephaniah 3.5, the Lord will not... Okay. Yeah. Sin is rebelling against God, right? Sin is rebelling against God, correct. So why is it that in Exodus, God commands Pharaoh to let the Jews go, yet God says, I will harden his heart, which logically, that would mean that God is actually the author of sin because he causes Pharaoh to rebel against his will. And he even did this in the name of giving himself Okay, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna. Um, so the question real, is, I'm sorry, real quick too. There, we have a microphone oh, yeah. too over here for anybody who would like to to use that. That'll help everybody hear the questions. Um, so the question there was about, um, and I'm gonna repeat it. You let me know if I'm off, but um, about whether God is the author of sin because He hardens Pharaoh's heart in Exodus. Right, okay. Um, so I think that's a good question that maybe um, maybe we could take offline with you, just being um, more about um, what would you call that category, like uh, predestination, or is that something like God's sovereignty? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we can come back uh, and discuss that in a, in a minute, unless you had an answer. No, I, I think it's better to take offline, because by the way, we want to uh, say this to you for this, this Q&A session as well as the one at the end. Uh, let's make sure we're, we're going to defer first to the, the um, questions that pertain to the material that we're covering. Um, and then if we have time left over, then we can certainly get into other things that maybe were not specifically covered uh, in the presentation. But then for some of these uh, tangents, 
Uh, we definitely want to wait till the end if there's time, uh, or if there, and if there's not time, then we're happy to take this offline and, and address it afterwards. Great. So the question was, how do um, Muslims reconcile that Jesus was a Jew, um, given their views on Jews? Is that correct? Yeah. And in the land of Israel, you know, Jesus was the first. Right. Do you want me to have anything? Yeah, sure. So uh, as far as, so in, in Islam, uh, uh, Moses and even Abraham are held in high regard as prophets. Okay, so it's not it's not that they are Jews per se. Um, their their uh, concern, uh, if you will, which is probably stating it mildly, but um, is that now they the Judaism as well as Christianity, right? Which is why there's such a big problem with the West, um, is that they have a system now or a worldview in place that does not acknowledge what we just covered in terms of the five pillars. Um, so, so anybody um, who does not uh, basically acknowledge Muhammad as, you know, Allah is one and Muhammad is his prophet, uh, for, you, you might want to pull that slide back up with the five pillars. Um, so anybody who does not acknowledge that, there, there's a problem there. Um, in fact, but over and over and over again in the Quran, uh, it, it, it talks well of the people of the book, okay, which are Jews and Christians. It speaks well of them in terms of a category, but then it goes on to say that in many, many places that basically though, but if those people of the book uh, do not acknowledge the truth of you know, Allah and Muhammad as his, as his prophet, then we've got a problem, right? So, but, but yeah, I mean, a, uh, Moses is a Jew, Jesus is a Jew, so that, but they are held as prophets and in high regard. Here, can I give you this? Yes, sir. Um, back to John 14 about the uh, objections, popular objections, uh, saying that <clears throat> uh, most people would say that Christians added that in later. Don't we have manuscripts that we can carbon date back to the first century that can prove that that's not true? Well, you're exactly right. So, that, so as we engage uh, with Muslims over, in fact, uh, Abner uh, in in a, a conversation with him, he just said, "Look, you've got to be really prepared as you as you speak uh, with with Muslims that that they one of their core views is that the Bible has been tampered with or corrupted." Um, and his response is, "We'll prove it," and, and or said in a nicer way, like, can, "How did you come to that conclusion? Right? Can can you show me where the, the Bible has been corrupted?" And to your point, which is a great point, yes, we, ne we now have manuscripts um, dating back to the early 2nd century, which is still several hundred years before Muhammad, right? So in, in we call that textual criticism, right? That we can go back and we can compare these manuscripts and we can see that, in fact, that was not added, 
um, that, that the counselor or the advocate that's being referred to there is in fact the Holy Spirit, and it, and it, there was, it was not changed. Yeah, um, and the um, textual criticism that you talked about, really we have an overabundance of these texts that we have from really close to, like you said, close to the time that they were first written. In fact, the earliest one that we have is about a postcard-sized um, piece from John, from the book of John that dates to around, I want to say, 90 to 120 AD. Um, so that's our earliest manuscript. And that one was for a long time. That book especially was looked at as the hardest to, to think, well, did that one, was that really written back then because it's so different from the other Gospels? Well, in fact, then we find the earliest uh, manuscript happens to be John. So good question. Any others? Okay, so the question is, why did we decide to leave Judaism out? Um, only because it's not one of the main six by population. So these were chosen by, um, like we saw that slide in the beginning with the populations. So we just picked the top six. Um, Judaism happens to be, as far as a worldview, other than the means of salvation, is almost identical to Christianity. Um, so that would be almost a course in itself, but we could um, talk about you have any questions we might be able to answer them um, tonight or maybe at the very end sorry today Yeah, so the question is, uh, how, do is, how does Islam view the resurrection since it is so central to Christianity? Do they believe in it? Is that right? You want to take, take it? So in Islam, uh, there, there are a couple of passages uh, in, in chapter 3, I believe, where it says that, uh, that Jesus was actually not crucified, okay, that, um, that, that it appeared uh, to them, that Allah made it appear to them that he was crucified, uh, but that he was not really crucified and that he was immediately translated up into heaven, okay? And so what's really interesting about that is that, guess what? If you can deny the crucifixion, well, then by definition, you deny the resurrection, okay? Um, so th there, are, there are some interesting questions to ask around that. Um, one that I, that I had... Not, that I had not heard of until fairly recently was that, um, in that in that chapter it specifically is referring to the Jews. It says that the Jews did not crucify him. They, the Jews, did not kill him. Uh, and so this, this one guy brought up the fact that, well, in, you know, in, in, uh, to be accurate, uh, the Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans did, right? He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Um, so the Romans were actually the ones who carried out the crucifixion. And so in a sense, that's a great question to ask. Um, how would this change things if I told you that where it says in your book that the Jews did not kill Jesus? That that's actually correct. They didn't. Um, they wanted him crucified, but the Romans actually carried it out. Um, and then it goes on to say that it, it, was, it made it appear to them as if, as if he was, and that, and that he was then, um, God, Allah took him up. Well, to me, that sounds a lot like 
a resurrection from the standpoint that, wait, somebody's died or maybe or not, but then it appeared that maybe he died. And, and obviously we know from Scripture that Jesus then appears over, the, over a course of 40 days, appears to you know, as many as you know, 500 people. Um, so so a, a, a risen Christ is, is being seen by multiple eyewitnesses I can see some things where there might be a little bit of wiggle room to get in there and say, well, maybe it did appear that he died. And did he really? Because now we see him walking around. Did he die or didn't he? It, and so it, I think it's a great uh, line of questioning uh, to, to ask the Muslim about what, what, what are your thoughts on this? And, and, and showing them, you know, it, when it's appropriate, the, the biblical account of the crucifixion and resurrection and then using what, what the Quran talks about in that regard and having a dialogue over it. The only thing I'd add to that is that um, out of six major um, cultures in that time, you have five of them that attest to the resurrection. You have Christian, Jude Jewish, um, Greek, pagan, and um, Roman histories all account for the death of Jesus on a cross. Only Islam says that that didn't happen. Yes. That would be a good question to ask. What do you, how do you account for the fact that five other um, histories account for the resurrection, but only Islam, which came 500 to 600 years later, says that it didn't actually happen? Right. So you have you have the the Roman census. You, then you have the writings of Josephus, the writings of Tacitus. You have the Jewish Talmud. Um, all, all reference uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, and they don't they don't verify the resurrection, but several of those basically affirm that there are many who are now teaching that this Jesus is alive again. Um, as we dive back in, I wanted to make one quick correction at the beginning of our time. I referenced our the verse about us defending our faith. I think I mistakenly said Second Peter three fifteen. It is First Peter three fifteen which says, set apart Christ and your heart as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in you and do this with gentleness and respect. So it is 1 Peter 3.15. Great. Okay, well, let's go ahead and get into the next worldview. This is going to be um, secular naturalism, also kind of known as atheism. Um, so let's get started. Ooh. We may not get our video. I know. Yeah. Come on is right. Let me try. Here we go. Can you see it? <laughs> nope. Oh, that didn't work. I'm going to try one more thing. All right. It's not going to work. I'm sorry. Um, if we have time later, maybe we can watch it. All right. So let's talk about naturalism. Um, so naturalism, obviously, is atheism. This is a very prominent worldview, in our, uh, especially in the West. Um, we see this worldview really starting uh, in the 1700s to become a big deal with the Enlightenment. Um, so we have this pre-Christian era, uh, or sorry, the pre-modern era, which is Christian. 
Um, then we have the Enlightenment, and we get into the modern era of reason and logic and science being uh, sort of God. Uh, and then later we'll talk about the postmodern era. Um, but for, for a naturalist, reality is um, nature only. So there is nothing spiritual um, or metaphysical that is outside of the physical world. Um, so the universe is a closed system, a closed box. The only things that can occur um, will happen by nature. As you can probably barely see in the picture here, this is the Bernstein Bears, uh, and a quote from them, which is that nature is all that is or was or ever will be. So that's a classic naturalist uh, point of view. So the universe started in a big bang, and science can tell us about that. Um, it can understand that and then tell us how, um, well, try to tell us how life evolved um, from nothing into something, which is actually kind of a big problem for a naturalist. Uh, so let's talk real quick about what do they believe. So humanism is uh, where we find value in this system is by um, elevating humans in some way above the rest of the nat natural order. Um, so as to why that should be the case, that's, uh, an, again, a question that's difficult to answer for a naturalist. Why would we be any different than any other animal? Aren't we just a co-location of randomly ordered atoms and molecules that made their way into what we are now and what we see? Uh, as we'll see in a minute, that has big implications. Um, so we were, or a, a naturalist would reject supernatural uh, and miracles because they are, by definition, supernatural. They are not part of what's natural. Um, so we reject, or they would reject them. I keep speaking for them. I'm not. <laughs> Not a naturalist. Sorry. Um, so the universe then is random in the sense of uh, things um, aren't uh, controlled by any kind of creator, um, but they are ordered, and thus we can use science to understand it. We can use reason to understand it. Um, and out of this, you get evolution and natural selection for um, the progression of life. Um, Darwin was the first to come up with this in the 1800s, and you've probably heard a lot about him. Um, so what does salvation look like in the naturalist worldview? Well, first, do we need to be saved from anything is the first question we need to back up. Um, what is wrong with the world in this case? Well, it's just the fact that everything is uncontrollable and out of control and really just determined by um, nature itself. So we are a product of that. and any kind of pain and, and things like this don't have the same kind of meaning that we would think of, um, but we can control it, we find, with politics. So Marxism grew out of this worldview as a way to control uh, humans and control uh, our world through political structures. Uh, so you see that in Soviet Union and several other countries that have adopted this type of view, but just to know that Marxism is a view that's founded on natural on the uh, naturalistic worldview. Um, there are a lot of problems with that if you look at Marxism, just in the way that it treats people with this type of view. Um, and then you saw earlier the natural selection of the, the guy who went and shot up Columbine. Um, so if there really is no afterlife, which is the assertion here, what does it matter? I mean, who cares? Like you, natural selection, be at the top of the chain and you'll survive. And that's, that's the goal, right? Um, let's talk about real quick something that comes out of this, two things actually, that spawn out of naturalism as a logical child 
of naturalism, we have what's called nihilism. Uh, nihilism is defined here as the denial of the existence of any basis for knowledge or truth. So we have just destroyed any ability to know anything. This is the logical conclusion. Any naturalist who's being consistent with their beliefs will end up here, although they don't tend to agree with that statement, and we'll see in a second how they try to fight back against that. But nihilism is also the general rejection of customary beliefs in morality and religion, obviously, because we don't have these kind of values. We don't need them. And the belief that there is no meaning or purpose in existence. It's kind of a hopeless and depressing worldview. But again, it's just a logical conclusion. There have been some, like Albert Camus and Frederick Nietzsche, who did take this to a logical conclusion. Camus has written several books that describe the absurdity of life. Uh, and Nietzsche himself, with, you know, I encourage you to look up his poem, um, God is Dead, or The Death of God, I think it is, um, where he talks about, so what now? We've, we've decided God's dead. W where do we go from here? Uh, and his conclusion is, well, we're not ready. The world's not ready for that kind of um, reality. Um, so this is not a livable worldview. This is not one in which we can live here in a nihilistic point of view and actually exist or want to do anything. <clears throat> um, so people, naturalists, didn't like this. They didn't want to stay there and kind of admit that this should be the way that life should be viewed. So you have existentialism come about um, as a philosophical response to nihilism. Where do we find meaning? Well, meaning comes from the fact that we exist. I think, therefore, I am. And that is all I need to define my own meaning. So humans create their own value. Uh, so we find value in existing. That's what we're talking about here. Um, now, I mentioned here theistic existentialism. And by the way, there's a lot that I didn't cover with both of these fields. There, um, in a book that I'll tell you about later, there are chapters in each uh, of each one in this book. Um, but we have something called theistic existentialism which arose in sort of the 1800s, around that time frame, when we had what, a lot of higher criticism of the Bible, is what it was called, where people were uh, attacking the biblical historical records and finding that, according to what they knew at the time, it didn't make sense, um, that some of these historical facts were not consistent in the Bible for what they understood. And so we'll talk about that in a second. But you had these philosophers and theologians who came, like Soren Kierkegaard or Karl Barth, who said, you know, it's okay if those weren't real. As myths, they fulfill purpose enough as, uh, for us in our existence, and that we can still believe in God, and these are stories about what he wants us to know. Um, and so we don't need to use reason and logic to understand the Bible. We can still get where we need to go um, through our existence first, we exist because God exists, and then the Bible is, is more or less a story, uh, except for maybe the New Testament, these tales that we can get spiritual truths from. Um, that created a lot of pushback, probably led to some of the rise of naturalism, because people didn't want to abandon their logic in their brains and check their brains at the door in order to believe in faith, or sorry, to believe in Christ and have faith. Faith was looked at as more of a logical or a huge leap to turning off your mind. Um, now, thankfully, in the modern century, or in the modern times, we have a lot more archaeological evidence that points to the fact that these historical events were true in the Bible, uh, and so we don't have to make a logical um, 
We don't have to put our, our logic away to, to have faith. It's not a huge leap. This is why you find books like uh, Reasonable Faith by um, William Craig, Lane Craig and things like this that just make the assertion that faith is reasonable. And this is something we should use when we talk to uh, atheists today. Um, we are not left to asking people to, to stop thinking in order to believe. All right, so let's put the naturalistic worldview in our chart. And we'll talk first about origins. So we've, we've mentioned it already. Reality is that everything that is is only nature. And so we evolved through um, chance and uh, natural selection, the process of evolution. <clears throat> and you could put here that the Big Bang is generally the accepted view in science of how the universe started. Although if we back up from there, what caused the Big Bang? There's lots of views on that, and really none of them are probably, um, well, we could go into that, I guess, if we have a little more time later. Um, so <clears throat> what's the means of salvation in naturalism? Well, if you think about the way people view science today, it's to, as a means to an end to a utopia. So human flourishing and human um, um, happiness can be gained through science and through logic and reason, putting away things that are unreasonable, uh, and also politics like we talked about with Marxism. So this is really a means of um, controlling the uncontrollable, so to speak, or controlling the world that is um, without God, it's on its own. Um, so ethics, though, here is a huge issue for a naturalist. <clears throat> Where do ethics come from? Um, so humanism, we talked about, is an answer to that. If we say that humans have some special value, then we should treat them as valuable. And thus it is good to be good to a human, to us and ourselves. So um, that's one form of looking at ethics, but it really doesn't flow logically from what we talked about earlier, that nothing um, has any value in itself other than being just a co-location of atoms and, and molecules. Um, so... Ethics is one that I would point to to, to talk about with uh, a naturalist. And, and I would say, um, I'm going to give you a few resources that could probably help with that kind of conversation. One is, that I didn't actually list, is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Um, talks a lot about morals and the idea of an absolute moral value. In a naturalistic point of view, where do you have absolute moral values? Isn't it just subjective? Whatever is best for me, natural selection should be best. And who are you to tell me that that's not okay? Because I'm just doing what I'm supposed to. I'm trying to look out for myself first. Isn't that what evolution is about, right? So a lot we could talk about on that, but I'll offer that resource and a few others later. Um, and then afterlife. Well, the video that I was going to show you, um, this actor says, well, someone says to him, well, um, what do you think happens when you die? He said, if you're buried, you go into the ground and you're worm food. And that's it, right? So you are extinct at that point. Uh, and then the person who's talking to him in this um, play just says, well, I don't like that. I want to believe in heaven, right? So we probably need better answers than that um, <laughs> as to why someone should believe. Um, but just to know that this is their kind of view on, um, and this is so popular in media, you've probably heard it before anyway. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how to engage this worldview. <clears throat> so as we talk to folks who hold uh, a naturalistic worldview, uh, these are great questions that for the most part have not been given uh, any uh, 
reasonable answers by, uh, by the folks who advocate for a naturalistic worldview. In fact, um, this first one, right? How can non-life give rise to life? Um, that, why don't we observe any instances of this happening at all today? If, if, if there, there is some sort of a um, spontaneous combustion or if there's something else uh, active uh, in the universe or in the world that, that allows uh, life to rise out of non-living material, why, why don't we still observe that happening if, if, that, if that's how it, it initially came about? Um, so this is a difficult, difficult question uh, for the naturalist to answer. In fact, there's been so many theories uh, that have been postulated from, you know, aliens um, to other things, which, you know, with, with the alien uh, view, that just, that just takes it back one step further, right? So well, how did life arise on that planet um, if, it, if aliens um, somehow uh, brought life here? So it doesn't, it doesn't really answer the question. Uh, the next one is, how does chaos give rise to order? Um, so if everything started in this, in this uh, chaotic uh, primordial soup, um, how does order arise out of something that is in complete chaos and dysfunction? Um, again, th th these are answers that are questions that really still have not been answered yet, but they're, but they're great, uh, they're great thought-provoking conversation starters. Finally, how, or not finally, but next is how can the impersonal give rise to the personal, right? So uh, if we started from some sort of a chaotic primordial soup uh, and then somehow the first living uh, cell was, came out of that and then eventually evolved into uh, more complex life forms, uh, how, how did personality arise out of that? That's, that's a question that still has not been answered. Uh, how is complex information, so we know now, uh, because of uh, molecular biology and so on, we know that even one single living cell, right, the, the information that's contained within the DNA of a single living cell, uh, there's more information there than an entire, an entire um, volume of Encyclopedia Britannica, right? And so we know through the law of cause and effect that when you have in, intelligible information, well, there, there's got to be a source of intelligence behind that, right? If you have a, if you have a, a book, a work of Shakespeare or Greg Kokel or anybody else, uh, we know that there's intelligence behind uh, that, that information that's it's organized in a complex way so that we can read it and understand it. Um, again, there's been really no good answers to how uh, something so complex uh, could have arisen uh, without, without intelligence behind it. And, and really all those sum up, again, I, I mentioned the law of cause and effect, which simply says that if you have an effect, which is a person, which is our universe, or so on, there has to be a sufficient cause to explain that effect. Um, and, and that's really what we're getting uh, at the heart of here. And then finally, as Tyler mentioned earlier, we've got some other things to talk through in terms of, well, how do you determine right and wrong? Right, if there is no absolute standard, if there's no lawgiver, 
who is absolute, and, and that truth is absolute, well then, well, where, does, where does right and wrong come from? How is it determined? Because in a naturalistic worldview, if it's just survival of the fittest, then if, if I need to steal from you to feed my family, then that's exactly what I should do because my family needs to survive. And if we're stronger, if I can come and take from you to make sure that my family carries on, well, what's wrong with that? Okay, so where, where, does, where does the sense of right and wrong come from? And then how do you define ultimate meaning and purpose? Right, again, if, if, as I mentioned when we looked at the, the Columbine example, if, uh, if, we, if we're here as a result of an accident, um, and if all there is once we die is the grave, then really this life is meaningless. It's just one cosmic accident. So that is very unsettling. What, what, what purpose does my life have? Uh, ultimately, there is no purpose because uh, we're told that eventually all of us are going to die. Some, sometimes in, in, a, in a conversation uh, with this world, you can, somebody will say, well, I've, there's, there's meaning in terms of uh, passing on things to posterity, right? That, that I want to uh, equip or I want to teach or I want to do something with my family and that will carry on. But at some point, that's all going to go away, right? At some point, the, the sun's going to burn out or we're going to have World War III or there's going to be a, a plague that kills everybody or whatever. So if, if there's no afterlife, um, then there is no ultimate meaning and purpose here. All right. And then finally, the, just asking the question engaging. So what, what if I told you there was a loving personal creator who offers you forgiveness and real purpose? What would that mean to you? So just want, we, we word that question in, in a few different ways, but, but that's sort of the, I think, a great launch into talking about what, what we believe. What, if this were true, what would that mean to you? How would that impact things? There's a whole lot we could say more about that, but we, in the interest of time, we'll have to probably do about 10 minutes per worldview for the next three, so let's get started. Um, so the next one is an interesting one. It's going to be difficult to probably describe for me, but let's watch a video first that may help. This is the construct. It's our loading program. We can load anything from clothing to equipment, weapons, training simulations, anything we need. Right now, we're inside a computer program. Is it really so hard to believe? Your clothes are different, the plugs in your arms and head are gone. Your hair has changed. Your appearance now is what we call residual self-image. It is the mental projection of your digital self. This, this isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. This is the world that you know. The world as it was at the end of the 20th century. It exists now only as part of a neural interactive simulation that we call the matrix. You've been living in the dream world, Neo. This is the world 
as it exists today. desert of the real. So um, postmodernism is an interesting subject and I wrestled with finding a video to portray it because postmodernism doesn't say that we live in a world with robot overlords over us or anything like that but the idea of a construct, um, a place where we bring things into existence is kind of where we should start with a postmodern. So we have this modern era that says that things can be reasoned and we can use logic to understand things and then we have um, some philosophers and linguists who come along and say, well, that's just because you defined it that way. So you're using a construct of language to give value and meaning to something. And so if we back up from there, I'm trying to explain this, it's, it's very, it's kind of difficult, but if we back up from there, then we say that, look, if, if you define something by your language, it's only just there be and it only has this value because you've said so and I understood you with my ears and so we can talk and understand things, but um, the way that a postmodern looks at this is, so first, our typical view is to say, well, there's a table there and there's a computer here and my words are used simply to describe what's already there. But for a postmodern, this only exists because I'm using language to describe it, if that makes any sense. Okay, so this is a construction, a construct, and it is actually an oppressive one says a postmodern. So don't try to oppress me with your language about what you think is true. If I want to say 2 plus 2 equals 5, it is because I've said so. So we lose meaning and things become relative in the postmodern world. Um, so therefore, reality cannot be defined objectively. What's true for you may not be true for me. Language, then, is a power play. So language should be deconstructed. So this, we, here we have the deconstruction, which is sort of the means to salvation in a way, but it's a belief about what is real. Well, you can't tell me what's real, so truth is subjective. You will see this in various forms throughout our culture, especially in the area of moral relativism. What's right for you may not be right for me, so don't try to foist your beliefs on me. Don't try to foist your, moral, your morals on me, right? I'm born this way. Uh, so... Man defines who he is and his value by language. Uh, salvation here. So what does it look like to, be, uh, to need to be saved for a postmodern? It, again, is the oppression of language and structures that are built around that to gain power. Um, so we need freedom from that. We need deconstruction. Now, I feel like I um, had to breeze through a lot of that. Um, Again, a book that I'll, I gained a lot of this material from, I'll reference later, has a whole chapter that's much better at describing that. Let's first go to the worldview chart. How does postmodernism fit then um, in these questions? So what is origin? Well, we've talked about postmodernism, but we didn't talk about re religious beliefs. This isn't really a religious belief system. And so you can have people with sort of religious um, beliefs of different flavors that have a postmodern mindset. Um, and so we have here pantheistic or naturalistic or even theistic um, postmodern um, people that you might call like a, a progressive um, evangelical or pro progressive Christian or liberal. In a lot of time, a lot of cases, that describes this type of worldview that 
you know, what you may read in the Bible is true for you that way that you read it, but I'm going to read it this way, and that's true for me. If anyone even gives credibility to the Bible, they'd almost be living counter to their worldview if they gave credibility to anything written, and if they even speak at all, they're contradicting themselves. Um, so here you would have people, I mean, even if we look at the idea, and I think Kirk will talk about it, of saying something like, all truth is relative, destroys itself, because that's a truth statement. And by your own admission and your own statement, that, that has to be relative. So it must be true for you, but I'm going to say truth is true. And you have to allow me. The only um, acceptable response for a person who believes that way is to say, I believe that all truth is relative, but that really doesn't have anything to do with you, so please ignore me. So um, in order to not contradict themselves. Um, so what is the means of salvation? We talked about personal autonomy, and then tolerance becomes a big thing here. You see that a lot in our culture. Again, if things are relative, then you should tolerate my point of view, um, and you find a lot of contradictions in that type of language. Um, ethics, just for the sake of moving forward here, we have to, but ethics um, is relative, and that's huge. We talked about the moral relativism is a very big deal here. It's defined by either myself or by culture, what's good for the culture, what do they want to believe, and that's fine for them. And then the afterlife will kind of vary based on what they believed about origin and sort of an underlying religious point of view. So you see not a lot of God in postmodernism. Um, some would even say, well, you can't know. So this is a very agnostic type of uh, view. Gnosis, and just to describe that because it really sums this up well, agnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is to know, and to agnostic or uh, anything is to not know. So we cannot know. So we're agnostic. Postmoderns are agnostic. I keep speaking. Okay, so let's talk about how we discuss this with people. Yeah, so, so very quickly here, um, th again, these are, we, we really need to ask a lot of questions of the individual to find out what they really believe. Um, so but it's just some ways to engage the conversation is to say the statement or belief that there is no absolute truth is itself an absolute statement. How do you explain that? Um, how about this one? If no one can know anything for sure, how do you know that? <laughs> right? Um, we want to appeal to emotions and experience. You know, what would it mean to you if you could know there is a God, that he loves you, and he made a way to have a personal relationship with you? What would that mean to you? Um, Using personal testimonies is really powerful here because it's, it's difficult to deny. So it, a testimony sort of in some ways fits into uh, their way of thinking because if what's true for you is true for you, but what's true for me is true for me, well, when I share my story of grace, of how I came to know the Lord and that sort of thing, you can't refute that. that um, in, their, in their worldview, that's, they've got to give credibility to that because it's my story. Right? That's how... I see things now. We would we would say obviously there are there are absolutes. How can you even have a conversation and and identify ideas and things that you're talking about without having the context of meaning, right? But so personal testimonies are are really helpful here. Absolutely, I think that that's really a, a key point. You can talk about the contradictions in logic. A person like this may even try to to argue back and say, well, I don't believe in that anyway. I don't care about contradictions. It's all language to me. It's all your way and, and I have mine. Um, so stories and um, um, personal testimonies are very powerful to this audience, as they are in, in culture and should be. You even see this show up in the Bible, right? So in, at the end of John, 
Pilate's questioning Jesus, and Jesus affirms, you know, I am, I am the king of the Jews. I am uh, the son of God, and I only come to bring the truth. I'm paraphrasing this, and he says, what is, what is truth? Right, so we sort of see that postmodern mindset there as well. All right, so move, moving on, because we have to go quickly. Um, let's talk about Eastern worldviews, and we'll have this video first. I'm, by the way, I apologize for the resolution. Listen to what he says. That's more important. Is it playing? It's not playing. Zen in its purest form. Let's try to back that up. This is a heightened state of concentration. I don't know how to back it up. Called Shikantaza, where okay. the mind, unaided by tactics to keep from wandering, achieves maturity in Zazen. The mind is at the lowest level of consciousness where no habitual thoughts rise up. Favored in Soto Zen, Shikantaza holds the firm conviction that with Zazen, realization of one's true nature is possible. There can be no error in the posture of the body and no lapse in concentration. This emptiness can be understood as a state of pure existence and containing nothing, it is an egoless state. There is no delusion, no anger, and no fear. The aim of Zazen is to achieve this condition where the mind is turned in on itself and we see the truth without obstruction, without distortion. This is the original mind, the ordinary mind. Nothing bothers you and you laugh out loud. With this wisdom, you enter the world again, but this time with naked eyes and there is no differentiation. You see your own true nature and it is the nature of the universe. Okay. So you see your own nature, and it is the nature of the universe. That's kind of sums up the way reality is looked at for uh, Eastern worldviews. Now, there's, it's going to be difficult because we in the West think of things a certain way, but we're going to try to talk about a worldview that sees things completely different uh, as far as reality. And even in me describing their doctrines, there's difficulty because one of the tenets of this faith system is that you move beyond doctrine. We don't, we don't care about doctrines, what, what um, the knowledge that you think you have and the dogmas. Okay, but let's talk about reality. So you heard the oneness or being part of the universe, um, the inner mind. So one of the key phrases for, for this worldview is Atman is Brahman. So what is Atman? Atman is my soul. It's an impersonal soul. So is Brahman, they're impersonal, but I am, a, uh, I am an Atman, and the Brahman is the soul of the universe. And so what this is saying is I am the soul of the universe. I am an extension of it. I'm a piece that kind of bubbled out from the universe. And now I have a personality, but the ultimate goal is to get back into that impersonal Brahman. Okay, so you see a cycle here. Um, this is where reincarnation and um, karma comes into play. So you're born, and then you go through life, and you either um, create good or bad karma, and then you die. If you are balanced, or if you have more good karma and have achieved your state, 
of oneness, then you go back to the Brahman. But if, you, if not, then you're reincarnated. And so you're in an infinite cycle here. Until you can get out of this, until you can have enough good karma, or whatever the means of salvation is, because we're talking about multiple worldviews or multiple religions even within this, then you can move back into the oneness. So really, all of them, though, they do talk about being enlightened up to a point of oneness again. Um, so here we're talking kind of about the uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, there are some that don't fall into this category, um, but those that are pantheistic, meaning many gods. Um, and God is one. God is one, yes. Um, and monism is the God is one part, yeah. And it's an impersonal God. Um, so the goal of, of life then is to achieve that oneness, and all roads lead to it. So contradiction clearly doesn't matter here. So that is something to be transcended. Contradiction, the logic, is something to be transcended. So when you talk about things that are logical with a person in this worldview, it's not going to really register, and they're going to deny that, actually. They're going to say, you need to overcome things like that, right? And so... Is that really what you think I need to do because it's better than the alternative? Wait, now we have a duality, right? So dualities are to be overcome as well. Um, so we talked a little bit about the um, world. Now, let me just mention, too, that the physical world is an illusion. Everything is really spiritual. Brahman is spiritual. And we need to overcome it through the use of techniques, such as the meditation that you saw. Um, so that is a way to transcend and turn the mind. You, you heard that? mentioned, turn the mind back inward, get away from the physical world. The physical is bad. Okay, so the inner world is what we seek here. So you have techniques, you have these realizations that lead to salvation. Um, karma is the system of ethics. And an interesting side note about karma, if, um, if karma is true, then it really destroys all um, need to alleviate suffering. Because the suffering is a result of bad karma for this person, and it needs to be worked out in their life. You need to let them receive the result of their bad karma. So where do we get ethics good and, uh, or doing good for others here? You don't really, uh, at least not logically from that worldview. Um, so death, again, we talked about the reincarnation and the cycle. So let's put this on our worldview chart. Um, so what is origin? Well, we're part of this original one, and the world is an illusion, so Brahman is the origin. And Atman, we are the Atman uh, that are a part of it. Um, we are living in a sort of um, a state of unenlightenment at the moment. Um, so means of salvation is to, again, achieve oneness again, so to go back to the oneness through these med meditations and other realizations. Um, ethics, no good and evil, those are an illusion. Karma is what's most important. And then the afterlife, um, we talked about reincarnation. And this either means that, well, reincarnation is the path that you go back and need to live again, um, or you become, you transcend back to the, um, the original Brahman. And, and here it's important to note you lose your personality. There is nothing personal about Brahman. So you're trying to get away from the self. That's a desire, which as Kirk will probably mention is contradictory. Um, so to have a desire to move away from the self the, or desires of yourself is kind of contradictory. Yeah, again, this is... Yeah, sorry. Give you some time. I'll give you the cheat notes. There's a finished worldview a few slides later. Do a worldview chart.
So again, we want to ask a lot of questions, right? Because within, within this uh, Eastern pantheistic, monistic worldview, there's so many different flavors here. Even within a certain religion like a Hinduism or a Buddhism, there are so many different sects and offshoots uh, that we really want to ask a lot of questions to find out what this individual believes. In general, though, uh, we, can do, we can ask some things about, um, first of all, the self as an illusion. So ask if, if, if the self is an illusion, then, then how do you know that your application of these teachings, right, or even the teaching themselves are not also an illusion, right? So you're following this, 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 um, this worldview or these teachings of the Buddha or of the Vedas or whatever it is. Well, how, how do we know that's not an illusion? And you're, you're just, it's a big waste of time. Um, Again, uh, we said this question earlier uh, with regard to naturalism, um, but it applies here too. How does the impersonal give rise to the personal? So if the universal mind is this impersonal uh, oneness or mind, and even my soul is supposedly impersonal, well, then how did personality arise out of the impersonal? And you know, these, these questions, I think, are important because, like Tyler said, in this worldview, people are going to... Um, People who are, are sharp and are trying to really um, stay true to it are going to say, well, that's, that doesn't matter. I can live within the contradictions. The goal is to rise above those things. But what we have to remember is reality doesn't work that way. Okay? Reality does not work that way. And so we want to keep bringing them back to the way reality truly functions. right? And so there's so many examples, but even like following a map, right? If, if if words didn't mean things or everything's an illusion or whatever, then how can you follow a map that gets you from one place to the other? I can show you how reality operates and that things really do have meaning by following a map to get me from point A to point B. If, if things were an illusion, and all, and that's, then the map would have no meaning to it. But, but you follow a map. You know, you're saying this to the individual. If you need to go somewhere, you're going to follow the map. So the way you live in reality is different from what, what you're telling me that you believe. Um, and again, this question, again, asked a different way. If it is true that God is personal and loves you, and that he suffered in your place to have a relationship with you, what would you think about that? Uh, one of my very best friends um, actually uh, was raised in a Buddhist background, and, uh, and he, he came to Christ about 12 or 13 years ago. And he said for him, uh, that was probably the, the biggest thing was um, the, the love and con care and concern that was really lived out to him and shown to him versus uh, what he grew up in, which was this, these constant contradictions everywhere, even in, in morality in terms of in his own home and how he was treated by his parents and things like that. That was huge. And then another huge thing was uh, that he was presented with a God, Jesus, who actually came and suffered on his behalf. Um, in this, in this uh, worldview, that, that doesn't exist. Um, you're supposed to, you know, we're supposed to, it's an illusion. We're supposed to just uh, rise above that and enter into this uh, conscious, or this uh, whatever, subconscious mind, this oneness. And, um, and so, but the reality is that we, there is real suffering. And, and Jesus came into the world uh, to solve that problem for us. One thing that's interesting about this worldview, if you... Um, and I'll ask it as a question. How do you think someone in this worldview would interpret John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. 
and not be condemned. You can answer if you know it. That would be a bad thing. You're still in your karmic cycle for eternity then. That's kind of the way they would hear this. Um, so it, to them, eternal life is not a, not a desire. But if we show them that, hey, reality is, you don't live consistent. Well, I mean, maybe we wouldn't say it that way. But the reality uh, around us shows that something's wrong with this world. And so let's look at what fits better with reality. That's kind of the way I might take that. All right, so we got one more worldview. We're going to talk about New Age. Um, let's start with the clip, and then we'll go. First of all, let's hear what your definition of spirituality is. Spirituality is a journey into self-awareness. It's finding out who you really are. It's your true self beyond your social mask, beyond your ego. And uh, when we are there, we experience love, compassion, joy, equanimity. But we also find spiritual insights, intuitions, creativity, unbounded imagination, free will, and choice. We find the solutions to every problem because problems come from contracted state of awareness. Solutions come from expanded state so, of awareness. So, so values, uh, creativity, imagination, all those things are of the spirit. Yeah. I know you've written a book called Spiritual Solutions, which, by the way, I think is one of the best things you've done since uh, Seven Spiritual Laws. Really, Thank really you. great, Thank great you. book. And I was saying to the audience earlier, I believe that for every problem, literally, other than, you know, food and shelter, the basic needs, but for every, all of our problems that we think are problems, that the only way they can really be resolved is through a spiritual solution. That's right. So, you know, if you have a problem, you're living in a contracted state of awareness at that moment, which means you're living in fear, so you're feeling separate. That's where the problem comes. When you're connected, with other people, with the web of life, which is the beginning of spirituality, that's when solutions occur. And when you're at one, then there are no problems and no solutions. There's just the creative evolutionary impulse of the universe, and you are the vehicle for so, it. So to be... Okay. <laughs> All right. So it's interesting. If you listen to him, you hear a lot of things that we just talked about in the Eastern mindset. You hear oneness and rising above and, and having an inner solution. Um, but you also hear Western concepts like science and um, desires to love and have a better life. So this is embracing a little bit more of the Western reality, the Western views of reality, and then mixing them with the Eastern views. And you can see why this has become a little bit more popular. A lot of people like the idea of Eastern values but find it hard to get a, a, a let's say, outside of the contradictions and the breaking the logic. Well, here we have both. But this one uh, raises a lot more contradictions. So let's talk first. What is reality? Reality is that the self is king. It's all about me. Um, so uh, and, and let me just tell you, first of all, there are many views across this worldview and this religion. Um, and some of the, the bigger people in this, um, like Deepak Chopra, don't even agree with each other about it all. But there are some basic ideas. That's what we're going to try to talk about. Um, so first is um, the individual is a god, not yet realized. And so we are literally on the brink of a new age of consciousness. That's where this kind of comes from. We are encountering a new age 
where we're going to rise above the consciousness that we have now and we will become greater beings. We will transcend our humanity and all its limitations, all these problems that we have that are a result of a contracted state of awareness, as he says, right? So this is the mind at large is where we want to be. The mind at large is the one that transcends those kinds of things. Um, and in, in that case, actually, sometimes morality tends to disappear for these types of people. So um, the beliefs, as I said, tend to be a combination of Eastern pantheism and Western thoughts. Um, we are, self is important here, so it's a personal type um, belief system, whereas the Eastern one was impersonal in the end. Um, humanity, as I said, is on the brink of the higher consciousness. Um, the internal invisible universe inside is far more important than the external universe. And in some ways, they relate to each other in that if someone is able to um, take control of their internal universe, they create externally in the visible. So you'll hear some people in this um, faith system say that they have created reality, that real reality is really just what they have decided it will be. Um, so salvation here is, like I said, the higher states of consciousness, even if it means embracing alternate, altered states like through drugs. Um, so you will see this um, with LSD is kind of used within some of these um, people. Um, and then utopia is the transcending of all of our human issues and problems through these means. Um, let's go to the matrix. This is the last one. We've filled it out now. So pan the origin here is pantheistic. As we talked about, it's, it's got the Eastern uh, views mixed with science and evolution. So in a lot of ways, you'll hear them talk about um, the physical nature of the universe and evolving. Um, so those are, it's in some ways, difficult bedfellows, but they put them there. And um, some of these views can tend to skew quite a bit um, and be different from what Deepak may say. Um, so means of salvation is that transcendence to the higher consciousness that we are kind of on the brink of, and some may have already reached, is what they would say. Um, death is a means to that as well in some of these cases. Um, ethics, then, is an illusion. It's meant to be overcome, although not all of them would agree with that statement. Some would still say that morals are important, um, whereas if you count sort of the Eastern mindset of it, you still you need to transcend good and, and wrong. Um, and the afterlife is that transition, is the deification of yourself. You become a full God, so to speak. And it's inside you, it's just not brought out yet. You should bring it out. Um, so let's talk, we'll go backwards, here we go. Finally, we'll say it again, a lot of questions here. So many different views uh, within the, the, the New Age uh, worldview. Um, some of these are going to sound similar because there, are, there is so much borrowed from, the East, from Eastern thinking. Um, but how can God be impersonal, right, but love us, which is a personal act at the same time? Doesn't love require familiarity and intimacy? So you see a lot of, as Tyler mentioned, they're, they're trying to wed these two Western and Eastern ideas. They want, they want, a, they want an impersonal God. Uh, but they want them to have personal attributes like love and compassion. And how do, the, how do those fit together? That's, that's a really great question to ask. Um, and, and again, we've asked this one before. How can an impersonal, one, impersonal oneness give rise to personal beings? Uh, they, they will say, Deepak and other, others, Oprah, I've heard Oprah say this before, that Jesus is, is one of many paths uh, to this self-actualization. 
Well, interestingly, though, Jesus said he was the only way. So how can both be true? That's a, that's a great uh, conversation starter. Um, and again, uh, another, another uh, iteration of this question. If it is true that God is personal, loves you, and made a way to have a relationship with you, what would you think about that? Um, similar to the Eastern, uh, I think it's important that we keep bringing them back to how reality really works. Uh, because th- this is where we live, and so a lot of their efforts to to try to uh, explain things in in terms of uh, avoiding contradictions and, and that sort of thing doesn't really fly in terms of how reality operates. One of my one of my really good friends that I went to college with, I had the privilege of leading him to Christ. He was in a New Age um, worldview at the time, and uh, and he said that to him, the the more he got into uh, into this new age view, and I, I kept asking him questions and and sharing with him the claims of Christ and things like that. He just finally realized that that ha- being able to understand and know truth was really important to him, um, and that he he eventually was able to see through the uh, the the illogical uh, reasoning that was going on with a lot of that new age belief, and so. Uh, he, he realized no, this this, this doesn't this doesn't jive, right? It, this it's it's too illogical. It doesn't hold together, and so um, he he made a decision to to trust Christ. So those are I think those are some good ways to to question to engage with the the New Age worldview. All right. So we are finished with our worldviews. Let's revisit the spectrum that we talked about earlier, the physical and spiritual spectrum. And let's put these worldviews as much as possible on this. So on the left, then, denial of metaphysical, all is, um, all is only physical in nature. Obviously, naturalism fits here. Nihilism and existentialism as offshoots of that uh, also believe this way. Um, postmodernism generally tends to fall in this category, and then Buddhism is actually an atheistic religion. Um, on, the, on the right side, then, Hinduism, Eastern pantheism, um, We've talked about that physical world is an illusion. Everything is spiritual. Interestingly, for the Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, they actually don't say either of those things. They say both. The reality is physical and spiritual, and God inserted himself, Christians say, into the physical world to show that it has value as well. So know that our resurrection is bodily. It's physical. We will come back to life as physical people in the physical world with Christ there. So God is spirit. There is a spiritual world. We know that. And there's a physical world. And so we have a uniqueness with Christianity especially in that, in that sense. Um, and then New Age, I put kind of out in the... There's, there's so many beliefs that can <laughs> flip-flop, but I think most of them tend to, to focus on the internal and not the physical, right? So there's a spiritual more found this um, interesting chart. I did not create this myself, but you can walk through this starting at the top left and just kind of ask yourself a series of these questions. Um, you could also Google um, images for what is your worldview, and you'd probably find this immediately, but I think it's just interesting. We don't have to walk through it. Um, and then I want to talk about some resources. A lot of what I have gotten for world, talking about the worldviews comes from this book, uh, The Universe Next Door um, by James Sire. Um, also recommend Neighboring Faiths, um, talks about actual world religions, whereas this one will talk more about worldview aspects and I cover a few religions because they are worldviews themselves. 
that book will talk more about the differences in beliefs within religions about salvation or about God, about things like that. And then tactics we talked about earlier about engaging people with these different worldviews is a really good resource. For Islam, I've mentioned the gospel for Muslims. Naturalism, um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Uh, and the end of reason is a really good one by Rabbi Zacharias. Uh, it's going to talk about morals and ethics and that as well. Postmodernism, um, I've got one for that. New Age also is a Rabbi Zacharias book, Why Jesus, where he addresses the kind of the new spirituality in America and in the West and how it's so, uh, it's really born out of the Eastern uh, mindset. One that I didn't add for the Eastern religions, um, I should have, but I'll tell you about it. It's called Jesus Among Other Gods by Rabbi Zacharias who's also an author that's on here if you need his name. Jesus Among Other Gods. All right, so we got 10 minutes, and we're um, open for questions. Anything you might have? Maybe wait for the mic if you have any. Yeah, okay. No questions. We did really well, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, mine too. There's a lot. This is so much to cover. We, there's... There's times when we'll actually do a full 10 weeks uh, going through the different world religions. So this is, it's a lot to cover in two and a half hours. Well, a couple of you just sound exactly you're like a four-year-old or my teenager. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay, that is so circular. How am I going to get past this? Yeah. So it's interesting, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I think we have one here. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Carol. I guess I'm unclear if you can break it down a little bit more, the difference between Buddhism and uh, Hinduism. Okay. Well, I don't, yeah. Um, so the, the difference is there. I, I'm not an expert on this, but some of the books may be uh, able to tell a little more. But I do know that, so Buddha was a Hindu at first, and he rejected some of the Vedas um, and um, the spiritual sort of side of that, at least in terms of, he, I mean, it's an atheistic, Buddhism is an atheistic belief system. He rejected some of those and then proposed um, another path to enlightenment. Um, unless you know much more about well, that. Well, the, 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 the catalyst for that was the suffering that he viewed around right. him. So, you know, Tyler mentioned this earlier, but, and we mentioned at the top that worldviews have consequences. So, um, one of the big, or the main reason why you have the caste system in India is the, the lowest caste of people are considered to have had bad karma in their previous life and so why would we why would we intervene to help them when they're basically paying for the bad karma so it would be bad karma on my part to intervene and to help this person in need then then I'm disrupting their, the the payback of their bad karma and then I could possibly then begin to receive bad karma myself so why would I interrupt that and, and, and Buddha did not like that, and he thought that, no, there's got to be a better answer to the suffering, which, was, which really spurred him into uh, Buddhism, which, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is, are sort of the tenets of Buddhism. It sprung out, yes. Mm -hmm. One there, we'll get back to you. Um, I just had a quick question about the, you know, transcending and having some sort of higher consciousness, how do they explain getting to that point? I mean, as Christians, we have prayer, we talk to God, you know, we obviously have the word, but how does that work? You know, what, how do they transcend and get to this higher level of consciousness? So um, we saw the techniques that were being done, the meditation and then really being straight. 
all as a means to sort of take everything off of your, uh, out of your mind, right? Um, so technique is a huge part of this. Mm -hmm. um, the word om that you've probably heard some that we'll use um, has a very loaded meaning. There's a, a whole lot to it, and it talks about it in here a little bit, but um, yoga is another technique. Uh, the realization of just transcending, realizing that I'm not a self, I, I don't need to obey these desires, uh, and then the ethics cycle that we talked about, the karmic cycle. Um, but you can see, like, I think these, these monks are expected, especially in the caste system, expected to be near the top, right? Almost ready to transcend, and they don't do anything. They kind of just sit there, right? Because that's, it's like, hey, this is, this is what it means to be at the top and to be ready to transcend, is to meditate all day long to, um, to have, have passed beyond contradictions and other things like that. But, that, but that's a great example of why it's important to ask questions because uh, some, sometimes it's meditation, sometimes right. it's yoga, sometimes it's, um, it's channeling, and it, it's, there's mediums uh, oftentimes involved in finding spirit guides. Um, so the, ask those questions to find out what it is that, that they are depending on or how they're trying to accomplish that. So the question is, has anyone attained it? Um, is there someone that can say, this is, I've transcended, I've gotten out of it. Um, how do they know that? Well, I mean, part of the definition of it is that you've transcended and you're no longer in the world or in the cycle. So you're not born uh, again and, so to speak, reincarnated. Um, you've gone back to Brahman. So maybe, and this is a question I would ask, actually, instead of just assuming, but um, that would probably mean that, hey, in reality, we don't actually know that's the case. We, maybe we have some who've gotten closest, like uh, Buddha or some of the Hindu um, people, but yeah, to transcend is to leave this world. Um, I think you had a question. I wanted to come back to it, and then we can get to you in a second. Is uh, modernism the same as naturalism? Is modernism the same as naturalism? Not necessarily, because modernism is one of those that transcends different religions or faiths like postmodernism does. It's a kind of a belief about reality, but you can have religions that, um, that contain some of those beliefs. So, um, for example, yeah, we need to hand out um, the survey. Surveys, by okay. the way. Yeah. If you don't have one, please fill that out and um, leave it in the back. Um, so, I just lost track of the question. Modernism. Yeah, modernism. Um, it's interesting, you can go and look at the history of the pre-modern Christian um, mindset that it's really our, our country was founded on, uh, and then you get to this modern, enlightened view that really um, relies on reason and logic. And, and science. You, see, you even see, and science, and you even see architecture, it's very square, it's very um, structured, and um, then you get to post-modern, and they don't like that. They, I mean, they just want to do everything different and... Um, uh, does that help? Does that answer the question a little bit? There's more in, in some of the resources, I think, that you could find on that. And then we had another question, I think. So do, like, certain techniques, like, for, like, using mediums and, you know, other things like that, does that mean, doesn't that kind of open up 
maybe a portal to the demonic realm where they actually may experience something and they're thinking it's you know something else but what they're really doing is opening up a portal to the demonic realm and kind of getting them in this kind of trap or whatnot are you asking that from the point of view of what would we say that it's demons that they're experiencing or do they believe that well I, they probably wouldn't believe that they would think okay. it's more of this but i mean to me i would assume that maybe some of these people that get involved in some of this stuff may possibly have seen something but in my interpretation that would be more of you know they're playing you know there's obviously god and satan and they're kind of inviting that into their life you want to take that sure yeah so from answering from the from the christian worldview that is exactly what we would say and what we would caution against is to say that uh, anything that, that is you're, we're, we're contacting you know, divination uh, things like that you're, you're contacting the spirit world um, the, the the answers if they're receiving answers from beyond um, we would say that the, those are certainly demons um, that, that they are that they are interacting with and so that's that's a, a huge concern to us but that's a great question to engage them with you don't, we don't have to get into angels or demons or anything else but I would ask the question to say so when you are contacting your spirit guide or in this process of channeling how do you know that you can trust whatever it is that, that is giving you this guidance or this information because if the goal is to merge into the oneness well then how did somebody come back from the oneness or how does that work that they that they are now there and they're not in the oneness to be able to give this guidance that's a great question to engage with mm -hmm. any other questions well we're one minute ahead so um and thanks I, for coming yeah. i don't know if i can speak for you yeah, I, i'm for happy it. to stick around for a few more minutes if anybody wants to come up here yeah. and, and ask more questions we're happy to do that yeah thanks for coming thank you